Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is James O'Keefe. James established Project Veritas in 2011 as a nonprofit journalism enterprise to continue his undercover reporting work. His organization investigates and exposes corruption, dishonesty, self-dealing, waste, fraud, and other misconduct in both public and private institutions to achieve a more ethical and transparent society. And in addition to serving as CEO and chairman of the board of Veritas, James is also the author of three books, including American Pravda, Breakthrough, and his latest, already an Amazon bestseller in advance of its release date next week, American Muckraker, Rethinking Journalism for the 21st Century. James, congratulations on the new book and welcome. Great to be with you and thank you for that introduction. My pleasure. James, the sleeve copy of your book begins with a quote from George Orwell's 1984. And it says, freedom is the freedom to say two plus two make four. If that is granted, all else follows. Is the government media complex trying to do to us what O'Brien and the government of Oceania did to Winston Smith in the novel and just make us believe what they tell us, despite what we see with our own eyes and ears? Hey, you, you just answered your own question. I couldn't, I couldn't say it any better myself, except to say that I've, I think it's kind of funny. I was born in the year 1984. Uh, <laughs> what, a, what a, how prophetic. Yeah, I mean, if you if this book, uh, an American Muckraker, is really it's all nonfiction, which it's kind of shocking because you read it and it evokes audible gasps because you're like, is this really what's happening in the United States? Like the uh, anecdotally, the instance, considering the tyrant O'Brien was interrogating Winston in 1984. This is the what you're talking about. For those of you who need to reread 1984, O'Brien, the tyrant, is interrogating the protagonist, Winston Smith, the last man, as Orwell calls him, the man who's who's being tortured by the state. And the torturer says, you know, two plus two equals five. And paraphrasing Winston, Winston says, well, no, no, I don't understand. Two plus two equals four. And finally, he unleashes the rat in the cage that eats Winston's face. And Winston, okay, fine. Two plus two is whatever you want it to be. And that moment, I think the rat isn't yet on our face, but 
there is a moment in this book where I describe a, a postal worker, Richard, uh, uh, Richard Hopkins, being interrogated by his O'Brien, a man named Russell Strasser. Again, not science fiction, reality. <laughs> Russell Strasser works for the Inspector General's office, former FBI agent, federal agent. He's doing a Soviet-like recanting, North Korea, gun to your head, please recant your statements that you witnessed ballot fraud. And you would say, well, James, you're just making this up, except the mailman recorded the interaction on his iPhone. And that's the difference, right? We live in a world where you do have these things in your pocket. They can record audio and we can expose the reality. And the reality contradicts the narrative that we often read and, and we see. And that narrative is written in newspapers like the Washington Post and the New York Times, which does not deal in video. They don't publish, they don't want to publish audio video. They publish the written word accounts. Written word accounts that include, according to people familiar with the matter, we don't know who those people are. We can't hear their voices. And oftentimes the people familiar with the matter, those anonymous sources contradict incontrovertible video evidence. And that's the story of American Muckraker. And, and that tells the stories of the whistleblowers who do the work and their, uh, and, their endur and their endurances. I saw that you were on Timcast a few days ago, but let me tell you something that stuck with me from your last appearance. And I believe this is maybe back in December or November. But you were talking about exactly that. This postal worker has witnessed some voter fraud and he wants to talk about it and they interrogate him and he records the interrogation. And the Washington Post tries to fact check your story, which is either a transcript or based on the recording. And, and you're sitting there <laughs> recounting this saying, but I have the recording, rock, beat, scissors. I, I, is this arrogance on their part? Do they just believe, look, I can tell you something that you can see is not true and get away with it? Or are they so far in their own bubble that they actually believe the things they write? Well, that was Jacob Bogage of the Washington Post who had people familiar with the matter. Now, what's ironic about that is we had a recording of the matter. So there's people, people familiar, and those are either the guy doing the interrogation or someone who, who the hearsay, that is the secondhand source who the guy talked to. But either way, it's not going to be as accurate as a recording. Think of it. <laughs> that it's, this is Kafkaesque. This is no longer Orwellian. It's like, don't trust the evidence. Trust the secondhand source who heard something from someone, and you have to trust us by virtue of the fact that we declare ourselves credible. So let me get this straight. Jacob Bagage of the Washington Post is credible by virtue of the decree that he is credible. Well, that sounds like a self-anointed racket, right? And, and, and after a while, you know, to draw a metaphor, it's like when you use anonymous sources, you're withdrawing currency from the ATM of your own credibility. And if all you do is make withdrawals and don't make deposits into that credibility by showing actual evidence, well, eventually people will stop trusting you. And that's why CNN's viewership is down. Because people look at those chirons and they start laughing at it. Maybe they're afraid to do anything about it because they don't want to be attacked by CNN. And that's the real issue at hand, by the way, the fear that Americans feel, the power of shame and humiliation. No one wants to be targeted by Jeff Bezos' Washington Post. No one wants to have chirons on CNN attacking them, particularly the Republican Party, who's, in my opinion, spineless. But if you actually record it like Richard, like Richard Hopkins did on his iPhone, and record the audio of what's happening, you have the power to change hearts and minds. And that's the power of the visual medium. We live in an era where TikTok, the audience of TikTok is now greater than Google. 
We live in an audio visual era, and that's a good thing. And I do believe that human nature, if you show people the reality, if you show people the truth, it can really, it can really open people's eyes in a way that the written word cannot. Why do you think so many people, and I'm thinking here of everything we've seen with the COVID response by the government and how, how much of a failure it is, why do so many people not believe their own eyes and go along with the narrative and even vehemently defend it? Fear. It's real simple, fear. They, they understand intuitively the power of the press to humiliate them. And, and they have, you have a choice to make. And I write about this in this book. Uh, the first chapter of this book is called Suffering, right? It's about pain. It's about endurance. It's about surviving these, these horrible things. Whether it's David Daleiden being raided by Kamala Harris, then Attorney General of California, Andy No being hurled cement milkshakes at him for reporting on Antifa in Portland, or my colleagues being raided by the FBI. I myself was put in federal shackles in New Orleans for walking into a federal building, showing my real ID and asking questions. Nobody wants to go through this. You have to be a masochist in some regards to go through this. You have to like inflicting pain upon yourself. And you might say, well, what type of sociopath would do that? Well, people who care about the truth. And I think you have a choice to make. You can follow your conscience and give up your livelihood, or you can not follow your conscience and be forced to live by lies. And I think increasingly, People are willing to do whatever it takes to get the truth out there. And I'm saying this as someone who's been doing this for 10 years. I've seen a lot since the pandemic started. So many brave people have come out and, and their courage is contagious. And it's so much more exciting and exhilarating, but, and frankly, more fun to, to do real journalism than to parrot the lines that the, that the administrative agencies give you. The problem in modern journalism is that the, they don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. They get too cozy with their sources at the Pentagon or the White House or the FBI, and they don't want to expose those groups because they get their information from those groups, and oftentimes the information they get is a prepackaged plastic piece of propaganda, and then they disseminate that to the world. So you have to be willing to go undercover. You have to be willing to, to say things that run contrary to the established narratives. Well, that's a great segue to something else I want to ask you about. And what's great about your book is it's not just hooray for me, look at all the good I've done, but you take on some of the tough criticism. And let me read you another um, 1984 quote just to get to your reaction. And this relates to your work. So I'm speaking specifically not about whistleblowers like Mr. Hopkins, but more when you've used an undercover camera, kind of deceived somebody into telling you something. Right. So Orwell writes, and for all the listeners, if you haven't read 1984, they had something called the telescreen, where not only you could watch TV, but the government could watch you through the screen. So this is what I'm talking about. And Orwell writes, there was, of course, no way of knowing whether you were being watched at any given moment how often or on what system the thought police plugged in on any individual, it was guesswork. It was even conceivable that they watched everybody all the time. But at any rate, they could plug in your wire whenever they wanted to. You had to live, did live from habit that became instinct in the assumption that every sound you made was overheard and except in darkness, every movement scrutinized. Now, James, as far as the government officials are concerned, I'm happy to have them living like that. But for all the people who are private individuals and not necessarily public figures, 
Is there a danger that your type of journalism creates this for the average people out there? Yeah, I, I spent a whole year writing one of the chapters in this book called Privacy. And I think privacy, I might make it its own kind of Thomas Paine packet, uh, like these, like the Encounter Books does. With the, this is a fascinating subject. I'm fascinated by the ethics of what I do. And I think you touch upon an interesting point. What is privacy? It was a term really manufactured by Louis Brandeis uh, in a Harvard Law Review from 1890. This is uh, Louis Brandeis, Supreme Court Justice, and Samuel Warren invented this right to privacy. But if you actually dissect what it means, we don't, we don't bug people like uh, 1984 did in the television screens. We only record people when we're with them. That means, that means you know that you're being spoken to. Now, think of it using common sense. You could talk to me and I could have no recording device. I could write down what you say, and then I could write an article about what you say. And no, no one would claim I'm violating your privacy. You voluntarily shared information. So we view the hidden camera and the audio app on the iPhone as an extension of the pencil and paper. And we've won in court uh, many times using this argument because when newspapermen, when they write down a written account of something, it's never as accurate as a video recording. And surely society would not consider reasonable an expectation of privacy, which considers a less accurate event, <laughs> a rendition of the events in question more reasonable to do. And um, so privacy is an interesting topic. And really what it comes down to is someone's dignity. People don't like being photographed, but that's not privacy. That's dignity. That's to say the right to control dissemination of one's own image. And we think that um, it is our cross to bear as citizens. You know, I, I have wrestled with this. You really do have to behave like someone's always watching. And, and that is something that we try to do. We're not perfect. Nobody is. We're all sinners. But we do, we do have to draw a line. There are certain areas we don't cross. We don't go into someone's bedroom, right? We don't explore the sexual or the intimate parts of people's lives. Intimacy is something I think that secrecy applies to. Um, the Supreme Court of the United States has protected the right of a journalist not to reveal your source. That's an area where you can keep secrets. And the secrecy of the freedom of association. So uh, you're not allowed to disclose a donor to a foundation. And that was the NAACP case in 1958. The reason was uh, uh, the, the intrinsic exercise of the First Amendment. You can't retaliate against people who donate to causes. So there are these boundaries that exist in the law and ethics and journalism. Of course, the rub on me is I'm a scumbag, criminal, unethical person, but this book wrestles more with ethics than any, frankly, than any journalism textbook out there. And I think it's important for people to behave ethically and behave properly. Um, but of course, in journalism these days, they don't even think about that. I hired a guy recently who came from one of these established newsrooms, and he told me, James, in the first four days at Project Veritas, I've heard more about journalism and journalism ethics than in my entire you know, decade tenure at, at, in, in my corporate newsroom. So it's interesting how they project onto us what they are. They, they often accuse their adversary of that which they are. Uh, which is something that we've also seen over the years at Project Veritas. Let's take a short break for this important message. Most people consider it a fact of life that prices are going to go up over time, and they've never gone up as fast as they are right now. But what if I told you it wasn't always like that, that for over 100 years, prices went down in America, even as the economy became more productive? Well, it's true. 
And as much as we like to blame the president when the economy is bad, presidents really have very little effect on our modern economy. The real culprit behind not only price inflation, but the constant booms and busts we suffer is the Federal Reserve System. My new book, It's the Fed, Stupid, is an appeal to Americans across the political spectrum to stop focusing on things that don't make a difference and start focusing on what does. Whether you're worried about constantly rising prices, wage stagnation, increasing wealth and income inequality, or the massive expansion of the government's size and power, they can all be traced back to an institution the powerful would prefer you ignored. Download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com and find out what you should really be fighting against. And now, back to our episode. You work on the answer, then you quietly save the day. You were right, Mr. Spock, about everything you said. We humans just are logical, too crazy in the head. Well, you mentioned lawsuits and one of the controlling factors here for your behavior, their behavior, is the courtroom. And you say in the book that you never settle lawsuits. I won't say that you like them, but you almost seem to gleefully participate even in suits against Project Veritas. Why is that? You are asking very good questions. Um, there's a chapter called litigation in this book. Um, I learned in my life, I was sued, you know, a dozen times or thereabouts in the first few years of my existence. And they were trying to break my will because, because litigation is so expensive. And oftentimes people don't have a choice but to settle because it's too painful to go through it. You know, you have to go through what's called discovery and people don't want their emails, you know, brought into court. I said, for lack of a better way of putting it, F it. You can go through my emails. I've got nothing to hide. I had to learn that through the school of hard knocks. They have everything to hide they don't want the new york times doesn't want me going through their emails obviously because they behave unethically and i can back that statement up in a recent defamation lawsuit which i by the way refuse to settle i will not no amount of money will make me settle this case against the new york times i won a historic victory in the supreme court of the state of new york where i live the judge ruled that the new york times acted with disinformation and deception in articles reporting about me claiming that i did deceptive reports the New York Times said to the judge, well, Your Honor, that was just our opinion, by which the judge responded, why the hell did you put your opinion in the first sentence of a news article and call it fact? Um, it wasn't an opinion, obviously. And, and now we get to see the New York Times emails. We get to see the New York Times statements. And one such statement they made in the discovery process of litigation was this. Your Honor, we got the facts wrong. They admitted in court that they got the facts wrong in that in that uh, Minnesota video that we did about ballot harvesting, they said it was not illegal. They admitted in court it was illegal, what we exposed. And the New York Times refused to correct the article. So obviously this sent shockwaves uh, throughout the New York Times. People attacked me. They said, James, you're against the First Amendment. I say, no, I'm not. I'm pro-First Amendment. The First Amendment does not cover defamation. <laughs> you, can't, you can't intentionally lie about a public figure with actual malice. You can't uh, yell uh, fire in a crowded theater to quote Oliver Wendell Holmes. There are boundaries to the First Amendment. And when you do that, you're actually acting anathema to the First Amendment. You are propagandizing. You are deceiving the audience. 
So I've learned in my life not to settle lawsuits we've never lost. And um, that's why people stopped suing me because they did not want to be deposed under oath on videotape. Yeah, things change when the, the hand is raised and the other one's put on the Bible. All of a sudden, the story changes quite a bit. Uh, that's right. And, and all, walk, all walks of life. The other accusation I think I've heard a lot about some of your reporting is, well, he takes things out of context. Now, the, the first thing is, sometimes the statements made, I, I just can't imagine what context would make this different. But what do you say to that, that you're editing your videos in a way that makes the non-sinister look sinister, et cetera? Easy, give me an example. <laughs> give me an example. And by the way, they, they, they never can. They never can. It's just, it's all, it's all just, excuse my, it's all, it's all bullshit. There's no, there's no actual example of this. In fact, in court, they said this. And by the way, I love what you just said. Things change when your hands on that Holy Bible. Now, a lot of these people are atheists. They don't even believe in God, but things change when you're in court, you could be impeached. Your credibility can be, you can't, it's the law of non-contradiction. You can't say one thing over here. And then another thing over here in court, you'll be impeached. Your credibility will be impeached. Like Lauren Windsor, one of these individuals that we deposed in the Democracy Partners case. She, she, said, um, she said that she was editing things out of context. And uh, our lawyer cross-examined her and said, uh, what did you do? You left out this. And she goes, well, I edited it out. And what's interesting about Project Veritas is that no one can ever give an example of an actual selective edit. They can never name one. In fact, I will write a $10,000 check to a charity of anyone's choice if they can give me one example in the last 10 years of something that I actually published. By the way, huge distinction. We get a lot of stuff sent to us. I don't publish it. Something I actually published that was false, where I took someone's words out of context. You will not be able to find such an example. In one case, I was sued for defamation for quoting someone accurately. And somehow I got to trial. This is in North Carolina. And I quoted this guy, Scott Vogel, and he said this woman was a bird dogger. And I quoted him saying this. This was a, the Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump election. It got to jury verdict. It, it, I don't know how the hell it got past summary judgment, federal mm -hmm. court, but that's, you're going to have to figure that stuff out for yourself. It gets to jury verdict, and the judge gavels the case. Federal Judge Reichinger of the, uh, of the North Carolina Federal Court says, this is ridiculous. He says, you're suing James O'Keefe for quoting this person. What, where, is the, where is the defamation? And they had no, it was in that moment that their lawyers were, 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 were fumbling and bumbling with their words. They were making up all this crap that didn't make any sense. And the judge dismissed the case and said something to the effect of, I'm paraphrasing, he said, if you, counselor, if you sued Mike Wallace, the late guy from 60 Minutes, if you sued him for what y'all are suing James O'Keefe for, everyone in this courtroom would laugh at you. <laughs> And I had, to, I had to litigate all the way to a jury verdict, which was very terrifying. I mean, I could lose, not because I'm wrong, but because my, you know, my welfare is in the hands of a jury. Sure. And I think, that, I think that's what it's about. It's about not compromising. It's about standing by your reporting. And these people who make these statements are really projecting onto me what they do because they do selectively edit. That's the soup they swim in at these organizations. So I know uh, you're loaded up with interviews here, James. We're going to link to your book, of course, on our show notes page. If people want to get involved with your organization, how do they do it? Well, um, the best thing to do right now is to buy the book. All proceeds go to our nonprofit, Project Veritas. Um, 
you can go to AmericanMuckraker.com. The book is behind me. It's for sale, sort of breaking news right now. I don't know why Amazon is returning uh, copies of the book to people. I don't know what that's about, but that we'll see what that's about. But it's number 12 on Amazon globally, worldwide. It's available on Tuesday. You can pre-order it. Go to AmericanMuckraker.com to, to buy the book. Support the salaries of our journalists. Support our nonprofit organization. There's not a lot of places for these whistleblowers to go. Read their stories and learn how to, how to tell the truth in clown world. Because I'm not a cynic. I believe that we're going to uh, succeed against these forces that seek to stop us. Well, I appreciate you spending the time with us, uh, James. Congratulations again on the book. Good luck with your work, and we'll keep following you. I hope you'll come back. Thank you. Take care. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.